church. Uh, quick announcement, uh, just as a reminder, I know we were told about the baby shower that's happening. There's actually a sign-up sheet in the foyer. If you haven't signed up yet to bring any food or treats or anything like that, make sure that today on your way out, uh, you, you sign up for that. So that was just a quick housekeeping. But other than that, good morning. It is good to be back with, as the psalmist will call it, the mighty throng. Uh, the congregation, the people of God this morning, we have made it back from Glorietta. So if you're unaware, this last week, I, myself and five other uh, youth leaders, the Oxners, Tara Shumway, and Courtney Woods, uh, took a group of 20 youth-aged kids up to Glorietta in two buses. Sounds like fun, right? And uh, we made it back, and over those five days, amidst the beautiful mountains and the trees and the cool weather, the students were encouraged to fix their eyes on Jesus, to look to Jesus, to experience Jesus. This morning, we will join them in that endeavor as we look at Psalm 42. This psalm helps us see the depths of our soul in affliction, tragedy, and pain. We can describe this um, downcastness of the soul, as Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it, as spiritual depression. We will seek to define this morning what a downcast soul is, or spiritual depression. We might think even, what are its causes? Could be losing a loved one sickness, the inability to worship with the people of God, sin, a spiritual apathy. The list could go on and on and on. And this morning, we will dive deep with the psalmist into the soul and seek to find help amidst the turmoil. If you would turn in your Bibles to the 42nd Psalm. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to my, the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hear the very word of God for you this morning. This morning, as we look to dive into Psalm 42, we're going to break it up into two sections. We're going to break it up into verses 1 through 5, and we're going to break it up into verses 6 through 11. And what we're hoping to do there is you will see the refrain, the, the words that we are going to be memorizing this month. Why are you downcast, O my soul? That's going to split up our psalm for us this morning, the first time it's mentioned and the last time it's mentioned. And we're going to seek to find out Amidst the turmoil of the soul, amidst the spiritual depression, the downcastness of our soul, we're going to seek to look at what are the things that the Lord has provided for us to help us in those times. 
This morning you're going to see three of those things. There will be three main points in what we do when our soul is downcast. And then what we're going to see is why we can look to those three things. So those are kind of your main points this morning. You'll have three main points and then a why. Why can we do those things this morning? It will be helpful for us um, to be able to do that. So let's jump in to the first psalm of book number two. This is the first psalm of book two of the Psalter. Right from the get-go, the psalmist, not David, the psalmist here gives us a look into creation to give us an analogy. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So right from the get-go, we see this analogy between the creation that God has created and our soul. A deer panting for water. Now, I'm not a hunter. Um, I don't spend much time with deer, but I have chickens. That's pretty much the same, right? Um, And when we see those chickens in the 110-degree weather, if you have any, I know you're chicken people here, their mouths open and they're panting. They're like, oh man, I need water. Okay, there's a frightened look. Chickens are always frightened, but there's a frightened look in these chickens' faces, and really that's what the deer's doing. This isn't like a cute little panting that the deer's like, oh, this is what deer do. No, this is a, it needs water, it needs refreshment, it needs sustenance for it to survive. And the, and the psalmist, right from the get-go, is pointing to this analogy to say, this is what my soul needs, My soul is panting for God. My soul thirsts for God. A thirsting for God. And I want you to see the clarification that the psalmist makes in verse 2. As we're thinking about this thirsting for God, and really this is your first point. In the downcastness of your soul, during spiritual depression, are you thirsting for God? One of the ways that we combat this spiritual depression is thirsting for God. Now note what the psalmist says. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's interesting that he would make that clarification. That he would say in this moment, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And what you'll see, and we've already read the whole psalm, so you know where he's going. But there's this reality that the psalmist isn't where he should be. The psalmist is no longer in the place he wishes to be doing the thing he's called to do and therefore his soul thirsts for the living God amidst a sea of false gods. Now we hear that from him this morning. He thirsts for the living God and my question to you is the same. Are you thirsting for the living God or are you thirsting for the lowercase g gods of this world? Are all of the gods of this world, like the psalmist, and we'll unpack this in a minute, which are vying for his attention, are these lowercase g gods vying for your attention? These fountains that are bubbling water, are you looking to them instead of Christ? See, this whole week, our youth were just inundated with this idea of fixing our eyes on Christ instead of all the other things that the world has to offer. That we are to cast off all of these hindrances of God. All of these lowercase g gods that are vying for our attention. That are wanting us to worship them. And my question for you this morning as you sit in these seats and you're waiting to hear about Psalm 42. Are you thirsting for the living God? There is an experiential aspect to Christianity. See, sometimes as Reformed folk or Calvinistic folk, we get too heady. And I'm all about the heady theology. I love it. I love diving deep into theology. But we must not forget that the head is not disconnected from the heart. And that there is a thirsting, there is an experience of God. And my question to you is, are you experiencing God this morning? Because the psalmist is saying, I I want that experience of you, God. I am thirsting for the living God, the only God that can bring me refreshment for my soul. It's no coincidence that this book 
book two, starts with the theme of water, thirsting for this water like Psalm 1 talked about being planted next to streams of water. And we'll unpack this theme of water. But my question to you would be, are you thirsting for God? And if you're not, is your soul downcast? I think there can be a correlation. There doesn't have to be. But there can be when we seek to drink from the wrong stream. When we seek to lap up the stream of all of these lowercase g gods who are telling us, drink from me and I'll bring you satisfaction in your life. And really all it can bring is death. Following something else besides the one true fountain of life will not, bring you, will not satisfy your appetite for Christ. It will actually give you an apathy towards it. Towards it. I think A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, has a good quote to help us here. He says, The evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the and lies our great woe. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God. And in him we shall find that for which we have all our lives been secretly longing. We need not fear that in seeking God only, we may narrow our lives or restrict the motions of our expanding hearts. The opposite is true. We can well afford to make God our all, to concentrate, to sacrifice the many for the one. This morning, this is how we thirst for God. We sacrifice the many, the others, for the one. So he says in verses 1 and 2 that we are to thirst for God like a deer panting for flowing streams. But then in the end of verse 2, he says, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, when I hear this, I kind of think immediately, um, I'm thinking of maybe in death. When will I appear before God? When will I see him face to face? When will I experience God with nothing else but just seeing him and his glory? Do we think that's what's happening here in Psalm 42? I think, there's, I think there's truth to that. I think that's a personal application of Psalm 42 that we can take, but it's not the only one. And when we're reading this in the context of Psalm 42, as we're going to develop here in verses 3 and 4, I don't think that's exactly what the psalmist is trying to tell us. I think he's trying to point to something even more helpful for us this morning. So just kind of keep that in the back of your head. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, certainly this does mean experientially. He wants to experience God like he used to be experiencing God. In fact, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. And then we hear this sentence of the oppression of the enemy. Where is your God is the taunt that the psalmist is hearing. So if we're thinking of context clues here, of trying to help us understand this idea of appearing before God, and really the Hebrew means appearing before the face of God, if we're trying to understand that, in the context we now see, wait a minute, the psalmist who's writing this is being taunted, he's being oppressed by an enemy. And then he says in verse 4, these things I remember. Now that should kind of, okay, this is, this is helping us here. These things I remember, and I'll, I'm going to skip over part of this, but we'll get back to it. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Well, what's happening here? He would go with the mighty throng. Who is the mighty throng? Well, it's the congregation. It's the congregation of the people of God. And he would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What was happening is that the psalmist was actually a song leader in the temple. Now, where do we get this from? Am I just pulling this out of thin air? No, when we read to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah, we must understand, who are the sons of Korah? This is the first time we've encountered this in the Psalter so far. Who are these sons of Korah? Well, I'll tell you. The sons of Korah were from the Korahites. 
Weird how that happens. And they descended through Kohath. Korah's father, if you want to look this up, 1 Chronicles 6, 22 through 48. Okay, descended through Kohath, Korah's father. They were employed in the performance of temple music. In fact, they were descendants of Levi, right? The, the Levites. So they have this priestly usage in their family line. So they were given over to employing the performance of temple music. But what's really interesting about the Korahites um, is that when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, Korah led a rebellion against Moses. Do you guys remember this? As they were wandering, he was one of the families that led this insurrection against Moses and against God. And what happened? The ground swallowed them up, swallowed up his family. And I think this is just a sweet reminder of the redemption God can do, the generational change that can happen in people's families as they follow God. Because although he may have been swallowed up in the desert, as the wrath of God was poured out on this people, the sons of Korah were employed in one of the most important tasks of temple worship. Now, as we look at that interesting fact, that actually gives us help in our psalm. As we look to our psalm, we see that this son of Korah, the psalmist, has actually been either captured or deported, and he is no longer in the land of God with the people of God, worshiping God in the temple of God. So when we hear this, I remember, he's actually pointing to the fact that he remembers worshiping God with the mighty throng, with the people of God. This isn't a, usually when we look at the Psalms, it's kind of this personal inner devotional thing that we do. But what we're seeing is actually an argument for congregational worship. We're actually seeing how important it is for all of us to be a part of the body of Christ. In fact, this temple leader in music is saying, I long to be before the face of God. And what he meant was that's literally where God would reside with his people, was in the temple. I want to be back there. I want to be before the face of God. I want to be with the people of God. I want to be worshiping God in song and shouts of praise keeping festival it's this beautiful depiction of the psalmist saying how important it is to be with god's people worshiping god sometimes we can get confused and say i can do this all by myself i've got my bible i can play the guitar at home and sing songs to my family we pray together i'm good but the reality is is that god has called you to be amidst the people of god to be ministered to by song by word by ordinance that we will be taking together this is important for you people it's important for me it's important for all of us to be a part of this all right that's a, a little side application there really quickly so we see that this psalmist who has been deported or captured he's outside of the city of god he's outside of the area where the people of god were and we'll see that even further in verse um it looks like verse eight or nine, rather. Um, anyways, we're, we'll, we'll see it more later as we keep going. But we see that this psalmist who's been deported is thirsting for God. He wants God. He wants that experience with God. And then he'll continue in verse four. He says, as I pour out my soul. Okay, I want you to take a note. First Samuel chapter one, verse 15. This is when Hannah pours out her soul to God about wanting a child. And Eli, who's looking upon her, sees her and says, this woman must be drunk. Look how she's acting. But the fact was, Eli had been so corrupt, he had been so uh, removed from what it was to experience God. The experimental or experiential aspect of his faith. He had been so far removed that he didn't even remember what it looked like to know God and to experience God anymore. And this is the same language that's used for the psalmist in verse four as he pours out his soul. But what is he doing as he pours out his soul? He remembers. Point number two, as we are experiencing spiritual depression or the downcastness of our soul, the psalmist shows us that he remembers. But what does he remember? He's remembering the worship of God. 
right? He's remembering God himself. He longs to be before the face of God again. If you would summarize the Psalter in a couple of sentences, one of them would have to be remembering the wondrous deeds of God. So when you are torn up over whatever may be happening in your life right now, we are reminded that we thirst, that we long, that we have to have God, the only stream that will bring us restoration. And we also must remember the wondrous deeds of God. He looks back and he says, I remember as we worship God, as we as this huge group of people were coming to the temple, shouting, singing praises, there was this experience of God so tangible to him. I remember being before the face of God. We have to remember our God. We must remember the wondrous deeds of of our God. Then he goes on and he gets to the refrain, which we'll hear again, verse 5 and verse 11. Whenever there's repetition, right, specifically uh, for this long of a verse to be repeated in full, this is helpful for us to say, this is important. We need to really spend some time here. And so we read, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So this is a rhetorical question that the psalmist is asking. He is, he's asking this question after going through exactly why his soul is downcast. Why is his soul downcast? Because he longs to be worshiping God again in the land of God, with the people of God, in the temple of God. So it's a rhetorical question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? When we think of the downcastness of our soul, I want you to see that the Hebrew word for downcast literally means to sink in deep. It also means to be in despair. Why are you sunken so low, soul? Why are you in despair? despair. But that's not all a downcast soul is. A downcast soul has turmoil. This literally means to growl or to groan out. You've experienced this, right? We all have. We have felt this chaos in our souls before the turmoil that something is not right in our insides as we seek down deeper and deeper into despair. And note what the psalmist does in verse 5. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? He gives the first command of this psalm, and he says it to himself. Hope in God. Hope in God. Not in hoping in what God will do for you. That comes a little bit later. But we see that he says, hope in God. What is hope? What do we do when we hope? It's that application that you're all ready to hear. Because we've heard it for months and months as we have traversed for Samuel. As we have gone through this altar. What does it mean to hope? It means to wait. Wait in God. But that's not all it means. It means to have a confident expectation. Did you hear that? A confident expectation. Now we as Christians have a blessed hope and the confident expectation that Jesus will come back one day. But I want you to see that the psalmist hangs here for a minute. He says, hope in God. Not in what God will do for you, but in Him. Have a confident expectation in the one true God of the universe. Well, why? Why should we have this hope in God? Because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, right? He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is just. He is merciful. He is righteous. He is loving. He is wrathful. He is unchanging. Make a note of that attribute. He is unchanging. 
This will help you as you traverse the downcastness of the soul. That God does not change. That is why we hope in Him. Because He will not change. He will not say, well, never mind. Jesus wasn't enough. He won't say, ah, never mind. I unpredestined you. No, God is unchanging. This is why we hope in Him. This is that experiential part of Christianity. It's not, okay, I'm going to pray to God so He answers my prayer and I get what I want. It's so you get God. Maybe I've just been in camp for a week. So I'm just really excited about what it means to just be in God. But I think we lose that. I think we lose that so quickly, especially us Reformed-ish people. We can lose that, but we must experience God for who He is. In fact, we need to experience God so much that the psalmist commanded us to hope in God. He commanded Himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise Him. He's remembering, this is what I do. I lead the people in praise. I will praise him again. And note this, you will praise him again, whether it's not in this life or whether it's in eternity where you are before the great throne singing songs to him for eternity. You will praise him. If you are downcast right now, if you are sunk so deep that you feel like you cannot escape the depths of the sea, remember, you will praise him again. If you don't have the words now, you will God will give it to you because he's unchanging and he loves you. I shall again praise him, my salvation, my deliverer. He has a confident expectation that God, yes, will deliver him. He will get back to the people of God. My salvation and my God, he will praise him again. What I love about this psalm is that it goes right back into my soul is cast down within me. He doesn't, he doesn't spend long after he gives this command to himself that he goes right back to my soul is cast down within me. And then he says again, therefore I remember you, right? So that's, that's point number two if I never said it. Point number one is the thirst. Point number two is to remember God and his wondrous deeds. Point number three is to hope in God. Not in what he'll do for you, but in who he is. That is where your hope lies And so he's remembering him from the land of, the, of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Miser. And I don't have a map behind me and I've been known to use my hand before. But where this is at, where the psalmist, uh, the, the writer of this psalm is, is that he's north of the kingdom. And he's looking back down. He uses these, these places for us. Mount Hermon, it's this little hill, or Mount Miser, this little hill that's right in front of this beautiful mountain range in Hermon. And so he's saying, from there, I look back and I remember you, God. I remember what you've done. I love you, although I am so broken. And then he moves to what is probably the most poetic portion of this psalm. The most rich language that we get here. He says, I remember you, and then he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is the pinnacle of despair. This is the pinnacle of despair for the psalmist. And as he says, deep calls to deep, friends, that is a reference to creation language. When we look at the word deep, what does that actually mean? We see it first being referenced in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see deep in this creation language referring to just the fathoms of ocean and sea all the way down to the floor of the ocean. This, you can't even understand it. And really, with all of our technology now, we still don't understand the ocean. Sometimes I get caught up in looking at the stars and being fascinated with outer space. We still don't know what's going on underneath us. 
We still don't have an idea. There are some places, if you read books, I read books with my kids, and, and they'll, you know, these informative books, right? Now we have Google. We can just Google it. But the kids have these books, and we're reading it, and, and it shows this picture of the Statue of Liberty that's turned upside down and then stacked multiple times going down into the water. And then there are parts of it in this book that say, we just don't know how deep it is. This is that idea of creation, of God creating a vast treasure that we have in our world and seeing how utterly deep this is. And as we look to the depths of it, the psalmist say, says, deep calls to deep, and he makes reference to his own soul. The deep here in this water is like my soul. Jonah in chapter 2, when he's been swallowed by the fish, actually quotes this. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows or your breakers passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. This is how deep the psalmist is talking about. It is that deep that he has been overtaken. He is in the pinnacle of despair. He is showing us the might and power of God. He is saying how he feels utterly unable to help himself. He needs God. He needs to remember him. He needs to thirst after him. But he cannot do it by himself. And friends, if you have not highlighted, if you have not underlined, if you have not starred verse 8, today is the day. Because in this beautiful psalm, in this psalm that touches so many of our hearts, I want you to notice that so far we have seen God's name mentioned multiple times, and it will be continued to be mentioned, and it's God, God, God. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim. And when we get here, into verse 8, did you notice what he says? He says, Yahweh. He says, Lord. It's all capped in your Bibles, right? Maybe a head nod so you're not asleep. Am I seeing a head nod? Yes. It's all capped in your Bible. What's happening here? In this moment, the psalmist changes from Elohim as he is in the depths of despair, as he has been overtaken by the water of his despair, the grief, feeling the power, the weight of what's going on in his life. And he says, by day, Yahweh. He goes to the covenantal name of God because he's a covenantal person of God. And he remembers that he knows a God who is faithful to his promises. He says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love oh man if you guys just can feel this for a moment that he is just broken he is like Jonah at the bottom of the sea he's got seaweed around his head and he says by day the Lord commands his steadfast faithful never giving up unchanging always and forever love to go and get him by day, Yahweh commands, and this is known as his covenantal love. So the covenantal God, covenantal God of the universe, commands his covenantal love to go and get what? His covenantal people. Are you seeing the hope that is found in verse 8? This whole psalm hinges here. It's beautiful. To think about God's covenantal love for his covenantal people. If you remember, we were in Psalm 36, I don't know, months and months and months ago. But as we were in Psalm 36, we spent that whole psalm defining this steadfast covenantal love. And I want to remind you of a few things about it. Number one, this covenantal love is immeasurable. The covenantal love of God, the steadfast love of God, is immeasurable. This is what Psalm 36 talks about, this steadfast love. Hear how this connects to our psalm. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, and your judgment are like the great deep. 
we are seeing that this covenantal love goes all the way to the heavens and it goes all the way down to the depths of despair where you are right now. That's the covenantal love of God. It is immeasurable. It's precious because it is our refuge. It becomes our delight and it is our life. It sustains us. It gives us new life. The steadfast love of God. And it's continuing. It doesn't stop. It doesn't give up. Because God is what? Unchanging. If God is unchanging, His steadfast love goes out by day, every day. As you see the sun rise every single day of your life, remember the steadfast love of God come for you. And this is why it changes then for him to be able to say at night, and if you've been in despair before, you know how horrible the night is. The treachery of the darkness that falls upon you as you try to sleep. And there is no sleep. And the psalmist says, and at night, his song is with me. So this covenantal love goes out, it gets him. And it reminds him of God. It shakes him of God. And at night, even in the tears, he is able to sing to God. I think we all downplay the seriousness of singing and how singing is a part of our sanctification. We need to sing because what it does is that it forms our soul. It helps our soul understand who God is. And in the depths of our despair, you'll remember a song that you sang. You'll remember the tune. God will give it to you. You will be able to sing. I can remember as a kid. This isn't because of just the, the woes of the world, the sin that has been in the world, but this was because of my own sin. When I was backslidden and I was pursuing the other fountains for other water that never satisfied. And I can remember I would wake up in the morning and God had planted a song in my head. I was running away from God. And the covenantal love of God was sent out by day to remind me of how much I was in sin and how much I needed God. And I would sing that song and oh would conviction come pouring in. We need song. And not just any song. We need psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to help transform our hearts to love God even in despair. And then he ends with a prayer to the God of my life. Now, the King James Version actually translates it like this. And it says, after at night his song is with me and a prayer unto the God of my life. I think the ESV is saying it the same way. I just think it's a little clearer in the King James. The reality is, this is what God does, and it should be our prayer. Okay? So God does this, and we should pray that God would do this. Okay? This is that pouring out of your soul. This is that experiential aspect of Christianity as we ask God to send his covenantal love by day and help us praise him by night. Friends, that is why we hope. Because if it were just within us, or I'm just going to muster up the thirst, I'm just going to get real thirsty for God, real quick, boom, let's do it. All right, I'm trying to remember, help me remember. Okay, I have a confident ex expectation in who this God is. If we try to do that all by ourselves, we will fail, and we will fail miserably. It is only because the covenantal God of the universe has stooped down in history and has chosen those who are his. And he has promised, my love will come to you every day. And because of that, we can hope. And because of that, we remember. And because of that, we hunger and thirst for the one true God. James Hamilton helps us here in his commentary on the Psalter. He says, such a thought process would lead to assertions in Psalm 42.8 about Yahweh co commanding his steadfast love through the day, resulting in a song to him in the night. Day and night the psalmist weeps in 42.3, and day and night he knows God's loving kindness and worships him in 42.8. 
His circumstances have not changed. His emotions are not soaring, and his enemies have not gone away. And yet he experiences God and can sing to him. God will not abandon us in our deepest woe. The rising of the sun to make day proclaims that he still commands his loving kindness to order the universe. Thus we sing through the night of weeping. Although our circumstances may not change, we know that God will command his steadfast love for us. We continue to see how the psalmist moves then from here. We see his language change a little bit when he says, I say to God, my rock. He sees now he has a foundation beneath his feet, his rock, his refuge, his deliverer. He trusts in God, the unchanging God, but he still mounts his complaint. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? He talks about the fact that it feels like an enemy's wound deep into his bone. And then they taunt him again. Where is your God? The repetition of his circumstances not changing at all. And then he ends with the same refrain. He commands himself again. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Friend, there is no happy ending to this story. There was no, and then he felt better. And his soul was no longer downcast. No, friend, that's not what happens. His soul is still very much sunken deep into the depths of the sea. But his hope in God, his confident expectation in the unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-just, all-righteous, all-merciful God of the universe has not gone away because God has sent his love to get him. So I have some concluding thoughts on Psalm 42. We have seen in this psalm that we as humans are susceptible to spiritual depression or a downcast soul. The psalmist has helped us see that the way in which we combat this is fixing our eyes to God. We thirst for God like it is actually our life because friends, it is your life. We thirst for God over all other things by remembering his mighty deeds that he has accomplished in redemptive history and by having a confident expectation in God himself. We can do these things because the covenantal love of God has stooped down in history to make a covenant with his creation. He has decided that he will command his steadfast love to go forth to his covenantal people so that they can worship the covenantal God amidst the turmoil of their soul. And in that, we have a blessed hope. Now, as believers in Christ, I can't help but see Christ. Psalm 42 actually connects back with Psalm 1. If you don't hear anything from me as we go through the Psalter, just remember Psalm 1's really important. And Psalm 42 goes back to Psalm 1 talking about water, about these streams of water. Talks about the importance of water in the life of a believer. Helps us see that we must desire the water from the living God. And this same concept becomes a common theme all throughout the New Testament as Jesus on multiple occasions will talk about giving water to those who thirst. So let's look at a couple of those this morning to be encouraged by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. This is talking about the woman at the well. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Remember the psalmist is talking about, I thirst for the living God. Not for other wells, not for other fountains, the living God. And so Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come down here to draw water. And we should be the same. Jesus, give us the water. Give us this water that will quench our souls, that will restore our souls. Even if I continue to be downcast, I'm just thirsty for you. And then, to cap it off, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. I'll start in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is Christ. Christ gives us the water that will satisfy your soul. And it's not from what you have done. It is only by that covenantal love of God. Our application is to thirst for the living God, to thirst and fix our eyes upon Christ no matter the circumstances we face. And we are to remember that it was Christ who accomplished the most wonderful deed on our behalf, taking on flesh in order to live a life that none of us were able to live or even capable of living, never sinning yet dying a sinner's death on the cross taking the wrath of God that we deserved and by his death on the cross, making the perfect sacrifice for a holy God. Then raising from the dead where he mediates even now on our behalf, on behalf of the people of his covenant, his steadfast love we remember. And we hope in Christ, the unchanging God, who bought us with his blood, to fulfill the covenant he made with his father before the foundation of the world. Just see that for a second. The covenantal God of the universe has sent his steadfast love. Oh, the application of Yahweh the Father sending his son to die for his people, to, to take the people that he had called to make the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, we hope in Christ, this unchanging God who bought us with the blood to fulfill the covenant he made with his father before the foundation of the world. It is in him that we have a confident expectation for his completed work and his second coming. Let me just go to 1 Peter if I can get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that per, excuse me, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, this morning we have seen that it is common for us through things like death, sickness, tragedy, pain, broken relationships, hurtful words spoken, 
a myriad of things that can happen can cause us to be downcast in our soul. And our hope immediately is to say, what can I do to get me out of this? How do I get out of the downcastness of the soul? And I want, to hear, I want you to hear this morning that God doesn't actually promise you that that will go away. You could be there for a long time, but what God does promise you is that he sends his love for you every day. And in that love, in that welling up in your heart, he gives you the ability to thirst. He gives you the recollection to remember him. And he gives you the hope that is a confident expectation in the one true God of the universe who will never change, he'll never take away his promise, he will always love you. So is there a cure for spiritual depression? Yes, but it is not in us. It is in God. The cure is to seek God's face so ours will not be downcast, which is what the psalmist does for us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you so thankful for your word that does all the work. Father, I pray that this word and the words that I have spoken this morning will edify, encourage, rebuke, admonish, help your people. Anything that I have said that is useless, Father, wipe it from their memory. Help them to hold on to the truths of your word. May your spirit apply it to their hearts. Bring them just the, the loving kindness that you have. Make it apparent in their heart. Father, help them experience you this morning. Father, if they're not, I pray that you would stir in their hearts a longing for you, a thirst for you, a wanting you above all earthly things. Lord, do this as you fulfill the covenant with your son that you have made before the foundation of the earth to save wretched sinners like us, to bring us into your kingdom by your steadfast love. And we pray this in Christ's name, the bringer of that love, the bringer of that covenant. 